electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, the bizarre state of the housing market just got even more bizarre. Why even some experts are scratching their heads. An offer they can refuse. Hollywood Studios striking writers fuming over a new proposal. From black and white to nothing but green, one retailer defined the slump, and it is skyrocketing right now. The name ahead, can you guess? Shelling out to dine out. Why Americans could be hitting a wall at restaurants and what we need to do to keep it going. Return to the office or just quit? A stunning worker rebellion flaring up at Amazon. And deflation is finally here, at least inside Yankee Stadium. Yeah, we're smiling too. All that and much more as we get ready to toss out the first pitch. So belly up or batter up. Last call is up right now. All right, welcome, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon at West. I'm Brian Sullivan. Such a big show tonight. And we begin with arguably the most important stock in America right now. That is NVIDIA with really make or break implications for the rest of the market and your money. A short time ago, they wrap up their highly anticipated call. It comes as shares of NVIDIA are surging up about twenty nine bucks, six percent after hours. They crushed on earnings. They crushed on sales. The guidance was good. Christina Partsinevelis has been cranking it out since 5 a.m. this morning. Thank you for joining us live. Oh, thanks, thanks for acknowledging I got, that. I got the next coffee. When, uh, tomorrow morning, I can't have more now. Uh, when the report came out, I actually said, wow, live on air. And all uh, of that I is- heard. <laughs> I heard. And then you go, sorry for the exuberance. I know, and I apologize, typical Canadian. But all of that AI hype has actually materialized for NVIDIA. The company blew past earnings expectations, revenues. Just like you mentioned, they posted the fastest quarterly revenue growth since 2010 and managed to guide $3 billion over estimates to $16 billion for Q3. That's more than the combined revenues of Q2 and Q3 of last year, just for context. Data center revenue, which contributes the majority of total revenues and includes the popular AI chips we just keep talking about, that jumped 141% quarter over quarter and contributed to this massive earnings beat. According to CEO Jensen Wong, the global data center market is worth about a trillion bucks, and many of those data center units are and will continue to upgrade to include AI and accelerated computing. So that means even more untapped potential for NVIDIA. Here's CEO Jensen Wong on the earnings call. Our demand is tremendous. We are significantly expanding our production capacity. Supply will substantially increase for the rest of this year and next year. NVIDIA has been preparing for this for over two decades. Preparing for what the whole world wants 
and you can't make it fast enough. NVIDIA CEO, is, what he's trying to do with that comment is instill confidence in investors that there are no major supply issues, even though they have to rely on Taiwan Semiconductor to make their chips and make them pretty fast. But this blowout report setting a positive tone for greater tech across the board right now. Rival AMD, look at that, uh, up about 2.5 percent. Taiwan Semi, the chip contractor, 2 percent. Broadcom, Micron, the list continues. Green across the board. Okay. The best movie about the financial crisis, in my opinion, is called Margin Call. Didn't get the attention. There's a scene where the CEO comes in. He says, talk to me as if I were a golden retriever who didn't know anything about the topic. So I don't. So explain to me and maybe our audience why NVIDIA has this unique space in this market. Where's Intel? Where's AMD? Where's TSMC? Where's all the other players? Why are they? Why is NVIDIA? What did they do to get this amazing leadership position. NVIDIA made the graphics chips for gaming way before everyone else. Is, they, it, is it the same chip then? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new iteration of it. And even on the call, they talked about a new product coming out every six months. So they added on to that original graphics chip. And that graphics chip is what's being used for a lot of this generative AI in simple terms. So to your point, that's how they managed to tap into that first mover advantage. AMD is coming out with their own AI chip in Q4 of this year, if they're on time. Intel tried to make a chip, failed. And now Intel, even I interviewed Pat Gelsinger just a few weeks ago, and he said that they may not be creating, and I'm paraphrasing right now, that, that next AI chip, but they want to build it on behalf of another company, much like TSMC does. So to your point about TSMC, they're a contractor. They build. You give me the IP, let's just pretend I'm TSMC, I'll mm-hmm. build the product, I get a certain amount of money for, for building it, and then you take the chips and you go. So that's the difference with TSMC. They're not coming out with the fresh IP, all the research and, and development. They're doing it in other areas and packaging and stuff like that. But they're building the chip. NVIDIA is doing all the research design behind it. To quote Christina Parsonevelis, it sounds like gaming got them ahead. If you want to play Elden Ring, they, yeah, and, and, and they to, made the chip that was better. And so it naturally worked for AI. And, to, and it also contributed about 24% to their total revenues. And it did well this quarter, too. So we can't even discount gaming is still yeah, relevant. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when gaming was like an important thing. Now it's all AI. Christina, we'll let you get some rest. It's like your 15th hour of TV. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Now, folks, NVIDIA is not just a trillion-dollar company making semiconductors. As Christina laid out. It is viewed as the bellwether for the future of artificial intelligence because its technology helps power the massive machines that make AI work. Now, even if you don't own NVIDIA, I'm sorry if you don't, but if you don't, you still need to care about it because NVIDIA is in more than 440 different ETFs and no doubt hundreds or thousands of mutual funds. And it also represents a huge weight in many of those. So when NVIDIA moves, it can actually move other parts of the entire stock market. NVIDIA, responsible for about 7% of the NASDAQ 100's big run this year, more than any other company, including companies like Apple or Microsoft. In other words, NVIDIA matters a lot to your money if you own any stocks at all. Let's talk more about this and other things around AI and NVIDIA. Bring in Dan Niles. He is the founder of the Satori Fund and fund manager Dan, you just heard Christina. I know you heard the call. You've read the numbers. What's your take on NVIDIA's quarter and guidance? Well, I mean, it was obviously a blowout quarter. Even if you uh, compare it to their quarter last quarter, it was still really strong. I mean, last quarter, they beat the April quarter estimates on the top line by 10%. 
guided the July quarter 53% above the street. If you look at this time, they beat July by 21% relative to guidance that was already enormous, and they raised October by 27%. So, you know, it's one of these things, the stock will be up tomorrow, and it'll get much cheaper tomorrow because the estimates are going to go up way more than the stock's going to be up. And so that's the good news with this company. And you've had a lot of companies say AI 50 times on their call. This is actually one that really benefits from it. And you can't say that about a lot of these other companies where numbers have actually gone down after they've reported versus in this case with NVIDIA, they are the enabler of AI in the Internet. I've got to be the bad guy. It's like, you know, everybody's touting NVIDIA. So I'm going to try to come at it from if there are any bears left. I'll try to come in it from that side, Dan. I think the main argument I would make if I had to be a bear against it would be valuations, obviously. Now, you referenced the E, the denominator. That's going to go up tomorrow. But forget about price-to-earnings ratios. I'm looking at things like price-to-sales, price-to-gross revenue, 15, 16 times gross revenue. I'm sorry. I don't care how great your company is. That's a number that's got to at least make a rational investor think. Um, not really, because no? here's the thing. You have to look at it in terms of how much value do you provide. So for NVIDIA, they're getting gross margins over 70%. So on a PE basis, which is the way you have to look at all companies, this stock tomorrow will probably be trading at a PE of 50 times, but the revenues are going to be growing closer to 70 times, 70% this year. Now, if you look at Apple, a uh, good example, their revenues are going to be flat this year. And you're paying 29 times for that. I'd much rather own NVIDIA than Apple. And you can compare Apple against a lot of other big cap names, but the earnings take into account how much value you're adding. And NVIDIA is mm. the only game in town. That's why AMD's numbers went down after they reported their June quarter for September. Yeah. They didn't go up. But, but Boeing, oh. Boeing can yeah. get an order for 1,000 jets. It has to be able to make and deliver those jets. I understand NVIDIA is getting a lot of orders. There's a ton of interest. Are they going to be able to fulfill those orders in time? Or could they then eventually, a customer gets tired of waiting and goes to an AMD, goes there to an Intel? No, there is no choice right now, right? So you have to remember, you can go, if you decide, well, I don't want a Ferrari and I'm going to go get a Toyota. Sure. Who says that? <laughs> But that's my point, right? You're going to wait because if you need something with this kind of performance, you're going to wait for it. Now, not all applications, to your point, need this. I mean, we own Intel as well. And quite honestly, Intel is going to be a much bigger position for us at some point going forward because Intel will, in my opinion, end up getting either Amazon or NVIDIA and in terms of being a foundry for their chips. Both Pat uh, both Andrew Jassy, CEO of Amazon has talked very positively about Intel, and Jensen has talked, mm. uh, CEO of NVIDIA has talked very positively about Intel as well. Intel trades at one times book value. Yeah. So yeah. to your point, Brian, you can say NVIDIA is overvalued. We own that one. I didn't, say, it was, I didn't say it was overvalued. I was just questioning if, if somebody had to make the bear case. Can I ask what is probably a really dumb question, Dan? Well, you if you want the real t- bear case, I'll give it to you. It's different than what you brought up. Okay. At some point next year, Every customer right now is double and triple order. And you have to remember, NVIDIA about a year ago was missing numbers by a country mile on their data center business because customers were double and triple ordering during COVID. So right now, you've got the same phenomena going on. And at some point next year, I would bet 
pretty much anything, you're going to have a quarter where they're going to guide down below the street. Now, that's and, and what would happen? We got to go. But what would happen to the stock? I mean, with this kind of volatility, you could see that being a situation where the stock drops 50 bucks. I've been around yeah, this a long time run. and you see it with these high growth companies. You got to be perfect. Well, yeah, but that's probably nine months from now, 12 months from now. And the stock could be up huge between now and then. So, you know, we didn't get okay. into some of our other stock picks, but there are other ways to play AI beyond NVIDIA. We mentioned Intel, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Oracle. Oracle as well um, is, I think, a better holding than Microsoft to play mm -hmm. AI, AI. So there's other really good uh, valuations relative to growth rates. Those are names I've, I brought up that I think you can use to play AI if NVIDIA isn't okay. your cup of tea. And there you so, go. There you go. Dan Niles, great analysis. Really appreciate you jumping on. We'll let you go. Thank you. All right, we're going to get reaction now from another Dan, and that is Dan Ives, Managing Director at Wedbush Securities. Dan, you were listening. Anything you disagree with? And are you going to be, I'm assuming, ratcheting up your earnings estimates tomorrow? Yeah, look, they're the godfather of AI. If you look at Jensen and NVIDIA, this is going to be the guidance heard around the world. I think it's jet fuel engine into the tech rally. I think this is just starting in terms of the NVIDIA story. This is an AI gold rush. This is real. And Brian, in my opinion, this is historical in terms of what we saw tonight. Is there a bear case? I mean, you heard I, I, I'm not trying to be negative on NVIDIA because everybody sure. everybody loves it. Obviously, the stock is soaring. It's printed money for investors. It's it's arguably I has supplanted Tesla as the most important stock as a measure of the entire market. Is there? There's always a bear case on, on every stock. There has to be. Yeah. Outside of valuation, look, the bear case would be that others start to, to win. If you look at AMD, as well as other chip players down the road. And then ultimately, in, in a macro, if a macro softens much more of a hard landing that we see, do companies pull back? From, from AI spend. And to that point, that's why this was this was the guidance heard around the world. This is what everyone in the market was was focused on, what the guidance was going to be. And if you look at what they're seeing, they are on the front lines in video. That's why for tech, I mean, if you're a tech bull, this is really a Goldilocks scenario, what we saw from the godfather yeah. of AI, Jim. Can I, I was going to ask Dan Niles to ask you this, probably a really, really dumb question, but he was talking about Intel, one time's book, can't get out of its own way. I mean, any scenario where NVIDIA would buy an Intel to gain the additional manufacturing capacity? I can't believe I'm even asking. Yeah, I, yeah, and no, I have not been I drinking. Don't see, yeah, I look, I don't see that. I could see maybe there are some partnerships. I think if you look at Gelsinger, you know, obviously definitely an Everest-like uphill battle for Intel. But if you look for NVIDIA right now, it's the only game in town. And I think they continue to be – this is just another trophy case quarter for them. But I think it just shows for semis. Just the pressure more and more that you're going to okay. have to do to ultimately to, to build up to this. But this is a, you know, this is what I view as really jet fuel into that tech rally, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, it rallied the whole market today. Dan Ives, do a pre where was Dan Nathan? We could have had the Dan hat trick. Dan, thank you. All right. Meantime, here's what happened to your money today. We talked about it. NVIDIA, maybe others helping the market. The Nasdaq, the big winner, 1.6%. The Dow and S&P also rose. Best day for the S&P 500 since going back to late June. VF Corp up nearly 4%. The biggest decliner was a company called Insulet. I have no idea who they are or why the stock was down, but it fell 4.7%. By the way, futures 
again, very thinly traded or showing them to you because of the NVIDIA news, and they are indeed higher with the NASDAQ. Look at an early pop, long way to go, of another 1%. All right, we are just getting started. Coming up, take a guess at which retailer is soaring right now. Plus, digging a deeper hole, a new rift erupting between Hollywood studios and striking actors and writers. How long can that strike really go on? All that's ahead. We're back after this. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, it is time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, CBC style. First up, breaking just moments ago, Boeing is identifying a supplier quality issue in its new 737 MAX planes. Boeing says it will delay aircraft deliveries. The problems involve improper drill holes on the rear pressure bulkheads for the plane. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Boeing stock is down 3%. Remember, The Boeing 737 MAX is the one that was taken out of service for a number of years while they resolved some issues after two crashes. Boeing, though, says this does not affect flight safety on any of the jets. That bears repeating does not affect flight safety. The FAA also says it is aware of the issue, and there are also no immediate safety concerns with any of the currently operating 737 MAX planes. This sounds like more of the future planes, an issue they've got to resolve. All right, next up, Snowflake shares seeing a pop. Who's Snowflake? This is the rather oddly named cloud computing company. They posted strong numbers just moments ago. The CEO spoke exclusively to John Fort about how, you guessed it, AI is driving stability in the business, particularly Snowflake's ability to make sure data can be used in a secure and compliant way. AI is going, can only be as good as the data, you know, that that informs it, right? And that it, it, it's obvious. I mean, intelligence doesn't come, you know, falling out of the clear, uh, you know, blue sky. So being highly organized and curated, uh, having data that is trusted, and that's also governed. Uh, you know, we said during the call, uh, you know, we spent decades, you know, governing data very, very carefully, so people could only see what they were supposed to see and all that. Catch full interview tomorrow morning with John on Closing Bell Overtime, 4 p.m. Eastern. All right, next up, some good news in retail. Yep, we said good news and retail in the same sentence. And the answer to our little tease minutes ago is guess. No, we're not asking you to guess. The answer is guess. The clothing maker popping on strong sales overseas, particularly in Europe and Asia. Not so much here. The news comes after a rough week so far for retailers. Macy's, Dick's Sporting Goods, Nike, all seeing major declines. All right on deck. 
could it finally be coming to an end? A new offer from Hollywood Studios to striking writers and actors is on the table. We will break that down next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Hollywood studios are trying to turn up the heat on striking actors and writers to the form of a new offer to end the more than three-month-long strike. CNBC's Kate Rogers has the latest there, as well as the summer of labor unrest, a lot of which is going on right out there in California, Kate. Brian, that's right. We're here at Amazon Studios in Los Angeles. There were striking actors and writers out here earlier in the day. As you said, there's a development in the writers, actors, Hollywood Studios standoff. The studios publicly releasing uh, their new proposal to the writers, which included a pay increase, increase in residuals and some additional AI protections. But the Writers Guild essentially saying this is an attempt to jam us and get us to turn on one another. So the message there keeps striking. This is not over yet. As you mentioned, some are calling it a hot labor summer out here in California. Not only have the writers and actors been striking, but the city workers in Los Angeles, 11,000 of them went on strike. Hotel hospitality workers have been striking weekly out here in L.A. Across the state of California, there have been 55 strikes in 95 locations since the start of the year. And among the major issues for many of the workers that are striking, pay, better working conditions, and housing inequality. We are all fighting to survive. Um, the economy is, you know, it's, it's very difficult to live here. Um, and we want to have, you know, a job that we can, we can say that we can survive off of. These are all frontline workers that have spent the last three years being on the front line, serving the public. They weren't watching the pandemic from a couch or from, you know, a distant place. And we feel like, you know, in the negotiations, it's important to recognize these city workers, but understaffing played a big role. And while housing and wealth and equity are longstanding issues in the state of California, some economists are pointing to other states like Texas, where so many residents from California fled during the pandemic and warning, we may be the first state to see this, but California certainly won't be the last. I think California is ahead of the country. But it's pointing to a, a crisis that's that's likely to happen nationwide and losing those people is a problem. And some of the union reps we've been talking to are saying just that workers and organizers in other major cities and states in the Midwest on the East Coast are reaching out to them here in L.A. saying, how did you do it? We are interested. We want to do the same thing where we live because enough is enough and we're going to stand up for what we think is right, Brian. So it's really fascinating. Some are calling it not only a hot labor summer, but also a summer of solidarity between all of these different unions and workers. And we're glad you're there. Kate Rogers in L.A. Thank you. All right, so how long could this crippling Hollywood strike go on? Spring and Puck founding partner Matt Bellany, who's been covering the writers and actors strike closely. Uh, Matt, welcome back. What do you make of the offer? 
It's interesting. It's it's not so much the offer, which we've sort of known. It's not only raises in uh, minimums, it's it's transparency on the numbers for who's watching what in streaming. It's guaranteed for the number of writers in the room, all things that the Guild has asked for. But if you talk to the Guild, they say, listen, the devil is in the details here. This is not exactly what we want. This is a uh, studio front to try to pretend that they're taking the high road here, but they're actually not. And the decision to release the proposal is definitely designed to get the full Writers Guild to look at this, and they want some division amongst the writers to say, hey, we want to go back to work, make a deal here. And yeah. the negotiating committee of the writers is saying, no, 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 we will not be divided like this. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it certainly sounds like you're saying the Writers Guild views what the CEO, you know, the, all the big CEOs get in a room and they know they're going to get press coverage kind of as a publicity stunt. A little bit. I mean, I think that the CEOs see this as a good deal. That It's significantly better than what was offered at the outset. And it took over 100 days of a strike to even get to a counter proposal. So that's on the good side, that there is some movement there. But I think the writers look at this, and they, they see this as a generational moment. They have not only the writers behind them, but they have the actors out on strike as well. And if they are ever going to get extractions from the studios, it's going to be right now when the pressure is on and both of these guilds are out. So they are digging in and they're saying, this is not good enough and we will hold out and now let's see what the studios do. They could go back to them or they could move on and try to make a deal with the actors and then put pressure on the writers. Yeah, explain in layman's terms what the difference is between, we kind of lump them together, but they are different beefs, right? They're different contracts, they're different organizations. So are there really two separate negotiations happening at the same time? They're not happening at the same time. The studios have decided to negotiate with one guild at a time. They first started with the writers, couldn't make a deal. Those writers went out on strike. They then moved on to the directors. The directors did make a deal. So they have the directors and then they went to the actors. The actors couldn't make a deal and they're on strike. Then the studios went back to the writers to try to get a deal. And that's what's been going on over the past few weeks. Now, if they choose to move on from the, the writers and go to the actors, that would be a big shift in strategy. And I'm not sure they'll do it. I think they might actually do it. Um, but I think the writers hope that the studios will huddle together and say, listen, we got to make this work. Let's yeah. put together whatever they need to make this work. Um, and they haven't done that yet. Yep. Hopefully they can come together. Uh, both sides come out with some kind of victory. Otherwise, they're going to be watching Benson reruns or something. Matt Bellany, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, still ahead, the co-founder of Red Hot Catch and Catch Steak Restaurants here in the house on how dining has changed and where it's going. Plus, how low can the swoosh go? Nike setting another uh, unwelcome milestone. Plus, maybe the strangest surprise yet out of a very strange housing market. I'll tell you about it. Coming up. All right, welcome back. Let's get to your last call watch list. The first one up is a disaster. Peloton, another dismal day for its investors. Stock hitting another all-time low. Losses keep mounting. Drop a new subscribers. Now, Peloton blamed the losses on a recalled seat bike post, as well as seasonality. Today's 22% drop. Peloton's worst single drop since January last year, third worst on record, which, by the way, says something. Because you remember during the peak of the pandemic, 
when no one could do anything, but everybody wanted the exercise bike, Peloton was $162 a share. It's now just five and a half bucks. We're also watching shares of software cloud company Cloudflare, tech news site The Information, reporting that SpaceX is working with Cloudflare, the partnership reportedly to help SpaceX's Starlink satellites bring customers speedier service. Cloudflare shares jumping more than 5% on that news. But then there is this, a slump truly of epic proportions for Nike. Nike stock down 10 straight days. By the way, that is the longest losing streak ever for Nike. You got concerns about the consumer here, as well as very real concerns about China's economy, which is a huge part of Nike's business. We're going to stay on the swoosh as investors hope for some kind of turnaround soon. Maybe somebody call MJ. Perhaps he's got some magic here. They may need it. All right, now to more in real estate, because there are just more almost bizarre data points coming out daily as we try to figure out what's going on. An example, you're going to hear this. Mortgage demand from home buyers has now dropped to a 28-year low as interest rates have soared. No surprise. But then you also hear this. First-time home ownership is surging. New research from Zillow shows that half of all home buyers right now are people buying their first home, and that is the highest share the company has ever recorded. That trend flying in the face of high rates and high prices. So what exactly is going on here? Joining us now for more is Zillow Chief Economist Skylar Olson. Skylar, it doesn't make sense. Help it make sense. With these rates, how can people with assumingly no money be half the market? Absolutely. Well, when we think about it, right, we have to put that number into context. So, yes, home buying activity in general is pulled back because of the affordability challenge. But what we're talking about here is a first time home buyer taking up a larger share of that smaller pie. So in order to get it or make it intuitive, think about, about that repeat buyer actually pulling back. They're the ones that are locked in, right, for, to the low interest rate. And yet a first time home buyer, yeah. in addition to say fundamental reasons for moving forward, like getting married and having kids, or that there's just so many millennials out there, they're also incentivized forward because of higher rates. Yeah, I bought my first home in 2005. I did not want to buy it. I was worried the housing market was going to collapse. I was right, but I was just early. But we kept getting booted out of rentals because the owners wanted to sell to take advantage exactly. of it. We had a new baby, and my wife was basically like, it's the house or me. So I went ahead and we scraped together every dime we didn't have to buy the house that we are still in, by the way, today. Is this almost, I hate to use this term, but I would say I was a desperation buyer. I had nowhere to go. Well, I mean, you know, what you're actually painting right now is a very real challenge of a household just seeking to make, you know, that normal lifestyle move, right, in order to settle down and stay in one home for an extended period of time. So how do you make it work? That same Zillow survey showed that first-time buyers cobbled together down payment sources from at least two places. Some of that is hard-won savings, right? That regular uh, tough challenge. The other part is, say, a gift from family Uh or friends to make it work or down payment assistance programs. By the way, never say settle down. Just because you move to the bird, you don't have to settle down. I never liked that term. But that, that that aside, I think you nailed it. Skylar, ahead of this, I reached out to a real estate friend of mine. Here's what they said. About 30% of all transactions are all cash, all cash. They don't care about interest rates. And you know what that tells me? 
These are a lot of the buyers are the sons of baby boomers, right? My parents are in the generation above that. The baby boomers, a lot of them have gotten really rich off the stock market the last 30 years. How much of this is do you think they're not going to the to the bank of whatever? They're going to the bank of mom and dad to get the loan. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, about half of first-time home buyers do seek out that banker, mom and dad. Um, that's up from around, actually, I think the number is around 40% have the bank and mom and dad, and that's up from only a third, say, pre-pandemic. But when you think about that picture, too, yes, repeat buyers are pulling back, but those that are moving forward are likely to be those downsizers that are liquidating, honestly, records amount of home equity into their next purchase. That is the advantage that repeat buyers who are moving forward have over the first-time home buyer. And then if you think about who has access to the bank of mom and dad, that's a pretty privileged network for other households. They might have to seek out for that last mile, say a down payment assistance program, the rising popularity and actually availability of those kinds of funds is a reason why Zillow now puts information about that on every one of our home listings. I think Skylar, you don't have to take the advice. Your next report should be titled, okay, boomer, I need a loan. (laughs) Absolutely, (laughs) one of my slides I call, this is not the avocado toast, right? Whenever we're thinking about, you know, how long does it take to save up for that down payment? 10% down, saving 5% of your income, you're looking at 10 years, oh, excuse me, nine years. Think about when the boomers were doing that back in the 1990s, just five and a half, right? That's it. Oh, and by the way, they had a a a bull bull market run that just never stopped in the stock market. Just good timing, right? Skylar Olson, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, speaking of interest rates and housing and markets, this will be a fun one. Tomorrow, for the first time here on Last Call, we're going to be joined live by the legendary Bill Gross. We're going to talk about a range of topics, including the Fed meeting, its implications for the economy as well, by the way, as a great call Bill made back in April. He said, buy the regional bank stocks. He sold them, but he printed money. In the meantime, we'll ask him what he's doing now. You don't want to miss it. Tune in. Last call, Bill Gross, 7 p.m. Eastern. All right, on deck. Mercifully, we have the price of something coming down. And it's all because the New York Yankees are not good at the game of baseball right now. That is ahead. Plus, how can we keep the dining boom going? The co-founder and head of Red Hot Catch is here with what he is seeing right now. And oh, unlike Catch, no reservations needed. All right, your RBI tonight is actually baseball-themed. And Yankees fans, maybe, just maybe, you're going to finally get some good news. The Yankees are winning against the Nationals 2 to nothing in the bottom of the second. Now, we're not talking about baseball to talk about it. If you've been paying attention, the Yankees are on a nine-game losing streak. That has not happened in 41 years. You heard that right. But here's a sully side up. Yanks fans, the losing streak is actually creating a little baseball deflation. Ticket prices are going down. In fact... For tonight's game, a family of five could score seats in the grandstands for a total of $32.60. That is including fees. And while the Yanks are are winning right now, it is early. And if the Yankees lose tonight, you'd have to go back 110 years to find the last time the Yankees lost 10 straight games. In fact, that was the first year they were the Yankees. Before that... And this is random but interesting. They were apparently called the Highlanders 
Who knew and who knows? Maybe they'll start giving the tickets away soon. Random but interesting. Yankees losing streak. Maybe. Good for baseball. All right, now it's six to nothing, apparently, the Yankees. So thank you for the live update, Taylor. I am now a sportscaster. All right, to the restaurant table we go. As inflation rises across most of the country, not at Yankee Stadium, so is the cost of going out to eat. According to new consensus data, restaurant spending in the U.S. has risen nearly 10% over the past six months. But at the same time, Open Table reports the number of people going out to eat is actually down. So what states are seeing the worst restaurant inflation? Well, when we compare data from last November to June of this year, it is Colorado seeing the biggest jump in spending up 24%. That is followed by Arizona, Wisconsin, you're welcome, Arkansas, and Nevada. So how are restaurant owners managing in this landscape? Let's ask Catch Hospitality co-founder Eugene Rem. They, of course, operate Catch and Catch Steak in L.A. and New York and Aspen. And I was actually at Catch in Aspen on Sunday. Your team did a fantastic job. Appreciate it, everybody. Thank you very much, Eugene, for that. By the way, I was with a group. They picked it, not me. No freebies. I want to make that clear. How has you guys are still one of the hottest places to go in the United States. Huge boom, COVID hit, you're shut down in a bunch of cities. New York City is still not, quote, back to normal. How are you managing this and how has the business changed the last couple of years? Well, to be honest, the business hasn't changed very much. I mean, the only thing that we have changed is the COVID scenario and what's happened after it. But six years ago, seven years ago, we had two restaurants, myself and Mark Birnbaum. We partnered with Tillman Fertitta. And I've heard uh, of him. you've heard of him, he's quite a legend. And <laughs> You know, since then, uh, we're, we're on pace to do nine restaurants. So we've opened one restaurant almost every single year. And in COVID, we continue to go through the process of opening one single restaurant every single year. And right now we have three under construction. That's Miami, that's Dallas, and just recently announced Scottsdale. So our formula is consistent. When things are great and the economy is booming in 2019, we still go with a steady, healthy growth. We never did mm-hmm. a blitz growth. Everything was always focused on consistency, and that's indifferent of the economy. And that's it. You know, and we've obviously talked to Tillman a lot about this on, on this show and other shows. And the one thing, and you guys are now partners, one thing that he has said repeatedly is, especially coming out of COVID, and he was, you know, lucky enough to be in a lot of places like Texas, which didn't have the lockdowns like we did, which is the consumer has gotten more discerning. They want the experience. It's not yeah. just going out for this or that. They need the whole consumer package. How do you how did you keep that when labor is so So hard to find. Absolutely. So there's three principles to catch. Great food, great service, and great vibe. And that's what is the total encompassing of that experience. And in order to have that, you need to lead with the team. And that starts from the culture. And that starts from the founders, from myself, Mark, and Tillman. And that trickles down. And that culture is not something that you could just create or pay for. It's something that has to take time. And you need amazing people. So those amazing people take time which is why you can't go so fast into expansion if you want to do amazing experiential dining. I mean, if you're doing a Burger King, I think those are scalable, but these are special experiences and you need to really create it. It's like a Broadway show. It's live every single day. What you did yesterday doesn't matter. People pay the same price every day and you must create that experience. We're crazy about that experience, unapologetic about it. And those are through our three pillars, food, service, and vibe. How how much is the vibe part key to your success because you guys you're hot spots i yeah, mean there's look, people coming in to eat yeah. at 10 p.m well look 
trends become fads and fads fade. So you need to be sure that you can stay iconic, right? So you need to make sure that you're focused constantly on doing that. The key to greatness is consistency. So you need to make sure in every single market that you're creating that amazing experience. And if you really think about it, what is a brand? A brand is a promise. So every market we go to, we have to give that great experience. And when we give a great one, for example, in New York, that amplifies to Aspen in Los Angeles. But if you give a poor one, in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. that's gonna create a bad experience as well. So you need to make sure that you are consistent with that hospitality well, and experience. We, we talk a lot about consumer warning signs here, but it's not stopping you. You're opening up in Scottsdale, you're opening up in Dallas, yes. you're opening up in, in Miami. Uh, those are not those are not cheap cheap towns, no. you know, no. but they're probably the catch, the, the catch family and catch audience. Is there any sign of prices going, your prices you guys pay yeah. for your steaks and fish going down, or do you think we're just gonna stop going up, but this is the new normal? I would say if you were to go back 12 months ago, we were up about 30% in our costs, right, for food and things like yeah, that. You're not taking huge extra profit, right? I mean, the, the, you're getting crushed on the supplier side. All we wanna do is get back to the same place we were pre-COVID. So right now, food prices were up 30%. They've probably shrunken down to being up 15%. But products cost more, people cost more, rent is not going down and you can't really take price. So you, the only way you can get through this is thinking of a long-term plan, which is not three months and living in a, in a phone booth of thinking about how you're gonna make money this quarter, but how you're gonna make money for the next three years. You can't make decisions in hospitality based on three months, six months. You have to have a long view on this because that's the only way to be successful, in my opinion. Well, you're doing it right because every time we pop into a catch, wherever it is, they tend to be packed even at 10 p.m. at night. So Eugene Rem, come back out. We appreciate you schlepping to New Jersey. Thank you. We'll open a catch, Inglewood Cliffs. All right. I, no, All right. don't do that. I, I don't won't. think it's a tough, tough, tough town. Eugene Rem of Catch, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, coming up. If you're more likely to see a tumbleweed instead of a person at your office, you are not alone. Astounding figures on just how many places, not just in America, but in the UK and Singapore, in other words, are just sitting empty. The numbers you've got to hear next. All right, welcome back. Let's wrap it up and talk about the hottest topic in business, working from home versus working from an office. It's a debate that is not cooling off. If anything, it seems to get hotter by the month, with some firms like Goldman Sachs ordering people back to the office five days a week and others, like Amazon, having employees threaten to quit if they have to go back too much. All right, so that's focused on America. But what's the reality for the rest of the world? Well, we may know. Workplace sensor maker XY Sense ran a study of office activity in nine regions, including, yeah, the U.S., but also the U.K., Hong Kong, Singapore, and more. And what they found was stunning. In the U.S., U.K., Singapore, elsewhere, a full 36% of all desks and cubicles are now never occupied. Think about that. More than one-third of all desks in major markets have no one sitting at them ever. Of the workspaces that are occupied, 29% had someone at them for only three hours per day or less. About one-fifth had people there for three to five hours, and only 14% of all desks or cubicles have an actual human working at them for five hours or more per day. Wow. Now, to be clear, the report did note that spaces for things like private huddles or more open collaboration or meeting rooms were more occupied than just single desks, implying when people actually are in an office, They may be hanging out together rather than just sitting at a desk, which may actually, let's be honest, be a good thing. As we know, cubicles can be soul 
crushingly miserable. But that said, with only a small percent of desks occupied around the world five days a week and trillions of dollars of commercial and office debt about to come due in the next couple of years, it really makes you wonder how it's all going to shake out. My bet, not good. Joining us now for more is Yale University lecturer and CBC contributor Joanne Lippmann. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not a U.S. problem. According to that Australian firm Sensor XY, it is a global problem. And where does this go? Yeah. So first of all, thank you, Brian, for having me. This is something I have been studying now uh, for several years and writing about this. So the fact is, first of all, if you were to invent the office and the workplace from scratch today, it would look nothing like the pre-COVID era. We, we simply would not have five days a week in person. And to try and go back to that is a non-starter. So what we have to do is think, forward. Where are we going to go from here? And I really think that um, when we see things like Goldman Sachs saying we have to get back to five days a week, it's simply not realistic. We're not seeing it. By the way, this is doesn't this feel like Groundhog Day to you, right? Don't you feel like every August we have the same conversation where right after Labor Day, we're all going back. It's all going to go back to normal. We got to no. get our arms around the fact that it's not. It's Amazon workers, that story, Amazon workers, some of them are threatening to quit if they are forced. They're, and the market, apparently, the job market's good enough that they can. It was a bank rate study I want you to comment on. 81% of workers bank rate surveyed said they want a four-day work week. Well, of course they do. I want a two-day work week. But 81% want a four-day work week, but they're willing to make sacrifices for it. I doubt that sacrifice is lower pay. Well, I have to say that 81% of the people are actually correct. There has been a huge amount of research in these past few years, starting back, Iceland did this a number of years ago, looking at a four-day work week. The UK has done a study. There's been a global study. They've all found the same thing, which is that productivity is the same or even greater in some of these studies. Employees are happier. And then you have you know, an improvement in work-life balance. You have an improvement in mental health. You have a reduction in stress. So there's actually a lot of evidence that four days a week in the office is actually good for the employer and the employees. And by the way, something like that could get people back into the office and help to solve these empty office, empty cubicle, cubicle problems. Yeah, I just, I just don't know what's, it's, it's like I see both sides. It's commuting five days a week is soul crushing. It's bad for the climate, a lot of cars, whatever. But at the same time, commercial real estate going down the drain. I don't know, I don't know what the balance is. I actually, I don't think usually I've got a hot take. I don't know what to think. I don't think commercial real estate should be the deciding factor here. I think the deciding factor needs to be what's working for your company and what's good for your employees and good for your other stakeholders and your shareholders. I mean, you know, one interesting one, um, I was on a panel on the future of work with Tom Wilson, CEO of Allstate. They sold their headquarters and he says that 82% of their 57,000 workers are now working remotely and it's had a lot of benefits. They've reduced their costs. And he said when they're recruiting new hires, since they've started this policy, they have a 30% increase in new hires who are diverse, women, people of color, uh, which is another really great point about um, we're going to have a better workforce if we can have these remote and hybrid situations because we see when you have a job posting mm -hmm. uh, for a remote work, you get more women and more people of color. 
And we now yeah, have... Yeah, but I, a- I, I would push back just gently. Sorry we don't have time for back in time, guys. But just quickly, got 30 seconds of the show, Joanne. Push back. Empty buildings are not good for anybody. They're bad for tax rates. They're bad for environments. They're bad for crime. There, there is a side to that, too. I agree. I agree. I think that, but there's got to be a separate solution for that. And we have seen some um, office buildings that are being converted. Some are being converted residential. Some are being used as, as you know, joint workspaces. And I think we've got to look yeah. for more creative solutions on the real estate side. Yeah, we'll see a lot of these buildings. They can't be converted if they're older than a certain age. It's too hard. But listen, it's a big debate. Joanne Libman, we appreciate you coming on. Good stuff on both sides. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Oh, yeah. Folks, what do you think? Should we go back five days? Uh, My guess is most of you are going to say, oh, heck no. All right. Thanks for watching Last Call for tonight. We will see you tomorrow. The Yankees are winning. Shark Tank starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.